Sorry, um, sir. Please continue. Um, the Iranian government's approach, uh, unfortunately, was not successful at all. They they chose to hide the facts for for quite some time. Uh, there was definitely a delayed response, and I feel like um, I would say the response was more um, prioritizing politics over public health. So there was um, you know parliamentary elections happening. There was a celebration of the Iranian Revolution, and the government was keen for those events to go forward, and they did not want, by you know, declaring that this was an epidemic, they did not want to um, prevent individuals from uh, participating in those events, which unfortunately take a toll. They did not shut down the city of Qom, where it was the epicenter. They did not stop uh, flights coming and going to China, as you know, because of U.S. sanctions, Iran has much more of an economic relationship with China. So there was a lot of back and forth, and the flights continued to go back and forth to China, and I'm sure some infections were brought in. Um, the other thing with Iran is uh, because of some of the events that have been happening over the last few years, including the, the flight uh, that was brought down, um, there is a lack of trust. And in, in an epidemic like this, the role of trust in government is crucial. People need to believe in what the government is saying. And uh, the Iranian government has a long way to go to try to regain the trust of the individuals. In the United States, I would characterize it also as delayed. I would characterize it as more of a patchwork response as opposed to a uh, organized, unified um, response led by experts. I also feel like in U.S. the response has been more political than more of a public health. I think this is the time for uh, public health expertise to to be sort of leading the way, and I think it's important for politicians to allow people with public health and medical expertise to, to lead. Um, the truth is they know what they're talking about. They've been studying these kinds of epidemics for decades. And also, they have a greater trust of the public um, than the politicians. So, so I think um, we have not had a uniform way of dealing with this. Every country has done it differently. But we absolutely, in the United States, we should absolutely be learning lessons from China, from South Korea, from Hong Kong, from Singapore. Uh, these are the countries that, that have been successfully managing this uh, outbreak within a matter of few months that we should be digging deep into those and figuring out what they did and adapting uh, for our response in the United States. Thank you, Mr. Krishnan. Uh, Mr. Hapbar, I just want to check if you've joined us. Mr. Hapbar? Okay, I'm going to go ahead and move it over back to Mr. Daria Unutmaz. Uh, Mr. Unutmaz, the question I have for you is, why has testing availability been such a challenge in your opinion? And in your work, what do you see in regards to a possible cure or vaccine in the near future or a distant future? So uh, I think, you know, there's, there's several reasons why uh, the testing has been a challenge. In my opinion, uh, the, the primary reason is that 
um, uh, many countries uh, didn't really take this very seriously. So there was a lack of um, uh, preparedness. Uh, and as the previous speaker mentioned, uh, China was very quick to uh, provide all the necessary knowledge uh, set to to develop this test. And actually, the test is, is quite simple. Um, we've actually set it up in our lab, and we're providing this test at Jackson Laboratory right now. Uh, unfortunately, there was a lack of political will in some cases and really uh, not um, pushing uh, to, to, to develop this. Uh, there, there were uh, some, uh, the, the testing, the test, original test, which looks at the viral RNA, um, uh, is not uh, terribly um, uh, sensitive. Uh, it is specific, but it, you know, it provides a lot of false negatives. In fact, I think the numbers from China does not really reflect the, the actual numbers. Uh, however, I mean, it is extremely useful. There were some limitations in the original versions that you need to use an equipment called a PCR machine. Uh, which uh, was uh, a bit limiting. You have to also train uh, the, the people for, for biosafety issues and, and, and so forth. Uh, so it was really a kind of a lack of organization. We, we had about two months um, to prepare for this. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't happen. Uh, but, you know, it was ramped up very, very quickly. I think uh, right now in the U.S., uh, we're, uh, we should be doing uh, up to 100,000 tests. And there are also new versions that are much, uh, much, much faster, uh, there's also now a new type of test called a serologic test, which actually looks at the development of antibodies to, to the virus. Now, this is extremely important um, uh, because uh, if you clear the virus, you will no longer be testing positive for the current test that we're doing. However, you will have developed an immunity. That means you you've have antibodies against uh, the virus, and so you can detect those antibodies uh, that you have developed it. Now, this has two uh, major implications. Number one means that you have at least a short-term immunity. We don't know how long it's going to last. Uh, that you can go back to work, uh, uh, you know, if you're a healthcare worker, you can uh, feel more safe in, in some ways. Number two, um, uh, there is also, there is now a potential, uh, I, I underline potential treatment, where the, the blood from the positive donor. So in other words, you have uh, been infected with uh, wow. SARS-CoV-2, but you've actually cleared it, uh, and you develop these neutralizing antibodies in your blood. And so if you donate your blood, uh, a plasma portion of that blood can be isolated and given to patients who are in the critical um, uh, situation. So it's sort of like uh, providing an extra help uh, uh, to, to those patients who are still very sick so that their immune system can sort of catch up to clear the virus. So this has been started to be tested in, in uh, NIH, in Johns Hopkins, um, on Sinai, Scripps Clinic, uh, in, in many places are, are trying to look for those who are positive and who can donate their blood. Um, so I think that uh, that's the second test, the serologic test, which is very fast. Um, it does have a little bit of a specificity issue, but uh, I think that needs to be very widely spread. In terms of the uh, vaccines and treatments, um, you know, this is a topic that, that I've been working for for a very long time, uh, many years ago for HIV AIDS. Um, we still don't have a vaccine for HIV AIDS after almost 40 years. Uh, however, I do strongly believe that we will have a vaccine for SARS-CoV-2. And the reason why we think we will have that is because there is a correlate of immunity. In other words, people do get better and they clear the virus, and they have an immunity. You have to have an immune response, otherwise you're not gonna clear this virus at all. 
However, we don't know exactly the rules of that immune response. So we think the neutralizing antibodies, the, the ones that I just mentioned, are critical. We also don't know how, how long-lasting that's going to be. Is, this, is it going to be for six months or a year or more? So those are things that we are actively working. We will do this. Uh, but I don't foresee any vaccine whatsoever before a year uh, in the most optimistic uh, timeline because you have to actually test this in a large number of uh, people. There's also one uh, potential uh, problem that might arise that, that, that I'm sure everyone's mind. What if the virus mutates like influenza? That's a possibility. So far, the good news is that the virus is not really mutating. It's mutating at a much lower rate than we would have expected. Uh, you know, a recent study just came out. The virus in the U.S. only have about 5 to 10 nucleotide difference compared to the, the Chinese original virus. Uh, so that's, that's a very, very low rate. Uh, now, the bad news is that that means the virus is extremely well adapted to the human uh, system, human host. So that's, that's not very good in terms of trying to stop the spread. But from a vaccine perspective, that's the very good news. doesn't mean that it's not going to change its structure in the near term. But we are more hopeful for the therapies. Uh, so there's, there's an incredible amount of research going on. Uh, I've been in this uh, for 30 years never seen an advance this fast uh, uh, this and, and, and an incredible openness among uh, scientists, institutions. The data is being shared within an hour that they're generating in the lab. Uh, we've uh, turned 100% of our work to, to COVID-19 research. Uh, all of Jack's is, is now, uh, Jackson Laboratory is now working on this. Uh, it's, a, it's an incredible advance. Uh, and I think, you know, what we have done in HIV AIDS in five years, we're able to do this in, in, in a month, I would say. So there's, there's a huge hope for potential drugs. We also have an incredible knowledge on what could be an antiviral. In fact, there are a number of antivirals that are being tried right now um, uh, that are being used in influenza and Ebola that do show some effect. The clinical trials are still ongoing. Uh, and as we understand the, the, this virus's proteins and structures, we will definitely have a, a battery of, of, of medicines. Of course, the new ones will take time to come to the, to the market, but we already have an FDA-approved set um, uh, that could be tried, and, and people are trying every possible uh, combination at this time. There is one other treatment uh, that is similar to, to what I mentioned, taking blood from positive donors and transferring to the, to the patients, and that is to actually synthetically create these antibodies in the laboratory. And we have the technology to do that. Um, and, and I believe uh, several companies, many labs are working on it. Uh, we're also working a little bit on that as well. Uh, and that, that could be a very fast um, way to uh, provide new, new, new therapeutics. So uh, on the short term, of course, that short term uh, is still months away. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful, much hopeful for the uh, for the treatment. Uh, long term, I'm hopeful for the vaccine. Thank you, sir. And I think Mr. Hafbar has joined us. Mr. Hafbar. All right. I think he's having some technical difficulties. Uh, Mr. Zard, I'm going to go ahead and move it back to you for a second. Um, so if we can you explain to us, working with U.S. companies in China or examining and analyzing, uh, what is the current situation of U.S. companies that are operating in China? Are we likely to see major changes in operation in the coming 
months or even a year. Uh, we've seen reports that Apple has reopened most of, most of its stores in China. What is that situation like for U.S. companies? Sure. Well, during the the outbreak, of course, the U.S. companies that are operating in China were affected just like Chinese companies. Um, most factories were shut down. I think there are some um, that stayed uh, open, but most factories shut down, uh, especially in the service industry. Um, everyone was working from home. But this is gradually shifting, and um, for, for most of our manufacturers, they are about 50 to 60% now up and running. The difficulty has been, uh, especially in manufacturing, that many of the folks that are working in the factories uh, live elsewhere. And as was noted, <clears throat> this um, virus uh, kind of exploded right about the time of Lunar New Year, when the tradition is for the Chinese to go to their homes, which oftentimes is not where they're living. And so uh, the workers couldn't get back to the factories because they were um, quarantined. So it was, um, it was really kind of a, um, a perfect storm. But that is opening up. We've heard that even Wuhan, if you have had a test, and uh, you can prove that you've had a test. You can now leave Wuhan. And so um, other cities are not controlled quite as carefully. So a lot of people are coming back to work. Now, remember that the majority of American companies, and I would say for most foreign companies in China, the majority of them are in China for China, which means they're manufacturing for the Chinese market. So they are not going to be going anywhere. They're going to be sticking around. They realize that China is the, the biggest fast-growing market in the world. However, for uh, some of the folks that have been sourcing uh, products uh, in China uh, for, uh, for their own manufacturing elsewhere, um, or, in, uh, for instance, in the um, chemicals or uh, pharmaceuticals area, have been sourcing some active ingredients from China uh, to use in manufacturing. Now, these companies actually, during the trade war, so-called trade war, have already started looking to diversify uh, their supply chains. And frankly speaking, um, these many, many American companies were much too reliant on one source. And I'm not saying just because it's China, but because China is good in manufacturing and traditionally has been low cost, which is changing, that many American and other foreign companies decided, okay, well, we'll just have the source of this product in China, well, um, that uh, strategically is not a very smart thing, and we've seen that during the, the trade war, and now we're seeing it during this pandemic. And so um, there are U.S. companies that are diversifying. I'd say 
Many of them are diversifying. That does not mean that they're pulling out of China. It just means that they're being smarter about this. So um, what we're seeing now uh, is that um, the uh, what the Chinese are going to have to do, we've seen what the U.S. has done with the the two plus trillion emergency package. The Chinese are going to have to double down on infrastructure investment. And, um, you know, the Chinese have an advantage uh, in that they uh, control the media. And it's very, very important for China to uh, be able to control the media so that uh, the party appears to be very, very much in control and has everything uh, nailed down and addressed well. As we go forward, the uh, the risk that I see, and one of our speakers has mentioned the possibility of a second wave, that um, in order to get Chinese economy moving, um, the party needs to reassure the population that the virus has been taken care of. And there is a balance there. And uh, what we're just hoping is that the focus on economic development is not going to outweigh the need for safety um, as we go forward. Thank you very much. Mr. Hoffbauer? Yes, can you hear me? Thank you, sir. Yes, sir, we can hear you. I apologize for the technical difficulties. Uh, thank you for joining us, sir. Uh, I want to ask you, in your opinion, where are we right now in terms of immediate economic impact from the coronavirus here in the U.S. Uh, we just received numbers of unemployment submissions this morning, and reports say that unemployment is going to skyrocket. Uh, how do you comment on that, sir, on the immediate economic impact here in the U.S.? Yes. As your other speakers have said, the United States is behind the Chinese curve and behind the South Korean curve on this uh, on the on the virus, and while many um, governors have locked down their states, which means that um, people are asked to stay at home and non-essential business are asked to close, uh, it's nothing like the um, <clears throat> severe quarantine measures applied in China and South Korea. So the spread is still happening here in the United States, despite the uh, public measures. And uh, it looks like uh, it'll be at least until May in the United States before we see a flattening of the of the curve. Uh, so we've got probably a couple of months of, of public health measures to to flatten the curve. And that means that the um, economy uh, will be very poor in the in the second quarter of uh, 2020. Uh, but as was mentioned, there's this huge fiscal program, uh, $2 trillion, both to individual households and to companies, uh, to provide a cushion. So while unemployment will probably soar I'm thinking 
uh, could reach 15% at the end of April, which is a very, very high number if we get that high. Uh, many people will be getting checks. Um, companies will be getting, getting some rescue. So it won't be, uh, the situation will not be as dire as it was during the Great Depression of the 1930s. Of course, nobody alive today experienced the Great Depression of the 1930s, except possibly as a small child. So um, it's going to be a very difficult time, but possibly by the summer we can begin to see some of the types of recovery which were described for uh, for China. Thank you, sir. And folks, uh, we're going to have a couple more questions for our panelists today and speakers, and then I'm going to open that up for Q&A. Once I do, you will get instructions on how to ask, uh, what to press on your phone to ask a question, so please prepare to ask uh, some questions. Uh, I'm going to hand it over to Mr. Kushner, uh, Dr. Kushner. I've, the import, uh, can you speak on the importance of testing for the uh, COVID-19 virus itself versus the testing for the antibody to the virus? Right. So I think um, one of my colleagues uh, on the panel just gave a very nice background on this, that uh, the current tests are really testing for the virus itself, uh, for the so-called antigen, to see if you have an active infection. But um, the other test that's being developed is a serological test or antibody test. So I don't want to I don't want to repeat the good information that was just uh, described. But the one thing I would say is uh, one of the major advantages of this antibody test is that it becomes a very important public health tool that will allow us to really get a much better sense of the true scale of the pandemic. Um, so we we imagine if we could uh, do a random sample of um, I live in the city of New Haven, Connecticut, if we could uh, do a random testing, antibody testing of uh, residents in New Haven and figure out what percentage of them have been exposed to the virus and have developed an, an immune response as measured by the antibody. Then we have a much better idea about what's going on in our city and it would be really important for our planning purposes. And that could be done at a nationwide level. But we need those serological tests. We need those antibody tests, uh, which I'm not sure they're available at this point. Uh, so that's a, that's a major uh, advantage of developing these antibody tests, which I hope they become available soon. Thank you, sir. And Mr. Hopfire, uh I want to turn the last uh, question from me, that is, uh, over to you. Uh, you know, you mentioned that at the end of April, we may see unemployment go up to as far as 15%. Um, how has the pandemic impacted the global economy, in your opinion? Have we, you know, now we have a $2 trillion bailout that is um, being negotiated in the U.S. Congress. Uh, from what you have seen, have other countries done this? And how do you think this will impact global economy? Well, uh, I talked about the fiscal aspect that is spending money directly to households and to uh, support companies. There's also the monetary aspect. And all the major central banks have greatly liberalized their monetary policies 
and the, the Federal Reserve has done things it's never done before. So has the European Central Bank, uh, the Bank of Japan, Bank of Canada, uh, Bank of China as well. So monetary policy has been very um, very helpful uh, in in all the major countries. And as you see, interest rates are on, on government securities are zero or close to zero or even negative in many countries. So that's uh, that's supporting uh, uh, the, the the world economy. Um, in terms of fiscal measures, the U.S. is well ahead of any other country at this point. Um, the U.S. may be behind on the health measures, as speakers have described, uh, testing and so forth, but it's uh, ahead on the fiscal measures. China will probably come in, as was mentioned, uh, it has a record of um, coming in with, with big fiscal programs when times are difficult. Uh, it will probably do that. And um, we will see about Europe, I, I expect, as well, some measures there. The big worry, I think, on the in the global economy are the emerging countries. Um, I'm speaking of, of South America, of Africa, and of many parts of of Asia, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and so forth. First of all, these countries uh, probably do not have the ability to practice social distancing or lockdowns. They don't have the testing. Uh, you know, their hospitals are hospital beds are very short relative to the number of people, and so on. And that will could be a very, very big, big blow. Overall, the the outlook for the world economy is a recession. Uh, and this has been, uh, the, the International Monetary Fund doesn't like to talk about a recession, but this time it is talking about a recession. I think we'll be lucky if the world economy is only down uh, 2% in, in 2020. Thank you very much. I'm going to go ahead and open it up to Q&A. You will receive instructions in about a second. Uh, to the speakers, you will go mute, and then I will unmute you in one second. All right. As our questions are coming in, um, I have a question for uh, another question for Daria Onutmaz. Uh, Mr. Onutmaz, uh, we talk a lot about and the gov U.S. government and governments around the country or around the world, sorry, have pushed the notion of social distancing a lot, have said that we need to flatten the curve. In your opinion, based on what you have seen, how do you think we are doing? Are we flattening the curve and is social distancing working? Uh, I mean, obviously, that's really critical. You know, what, what uh, as, as scientists, we have to look at the data, and uh, and the data is coming from uh, Southeast uh, Asia, uh, China, as uh, someone previously mentioned, uh, have done a, a very draconian 
uh, type of a quarantine uh, really uh, forced 100 million people in their houses for about two months. Um, uh, you know, in retrospect, uh, you know, that, that actually worked. Um, now, that cannot be done in every country, obviously. Uh, but we have examples of South Korea, we have Taiwan, we have Hong Kong, we have Singapore. Uh, they have done fabulous job in both combining the extensive testing and quarantining uh, people who have been tested positive. Uh, they've, they've started to catch people even before the symptoms uh, showed up. Because one of the problems with this infection is that you, the incubation period is very long. Uh, it could be up to two weeks and maybe even longer. And you can be uh, relatively asymptomatic, means that you don't have much symptoms uh, and you could be spreading the virus. So catching those people early on is really critical to, to really limit. I mean, the example from South Korea, they've identified 31 uh, people uh, in this particular church who were the, sort of the initial cluster. They found the 30 of them, but just one person was able to spread it to 600 others or maybe even more. So this, this, this is really the only way. So I think, you know, the, the best strategy is to really combine uh, what we call social distancing um, as well as extensive, extensive testing. Uh, but uh, I'm afraid that, you know, we're, we're too late um, to do the South Korean or other uh, countries uh, uh, sort of the strategy because, the, the virus has been spreading in the U.S. for probably for the past two months, and we really haven't taken it seriously. Um, and, and only recently, as you saw in New York and other cities, you're, you're at this point forced down to a complete lockdown because what happens is that, you know, if the, if the cases explode, your healthcare system starts to collapse. You, you, you have tens of thousands of people running to the hospitals, and then the critical limiting factor here that people maybe don't pay enough attention are the healthcare workers. I mean, they're getting sick. They're getting infected right and left. So we have to absolutely protect them. They're, they're working day and night. Um, so uh, I, I think uh, th th at this point, uh, in my opinion, we really, really have to do a very strict uh, lockdowns and, and really uh, limiting uh, non-essential people from, from leaving their houses for uh, for several weeks at least, so that we can at least flatten the curve, so-called, so that uh, the number of cases uh, uh, are not exploding. Thank you very much. And our next question is going to go to Gabrielle Williams. Go ahead, Gabrielle. Hi, my name is Gabrielle. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Um, my question is, um, what role do you see international organizations and players, whether that's um, MDBs, the WHO, um, in coordinating together um, to help countries respond? And in particular, as we've had a disrupted supply chain um, and limited supply, how do you see those organizations coming together and what should they uh, possibly do to ensure that there's an equitable distribution and procurement of goods? And I believe that question is for any speaker. Just uh, after questions, maybe I can start. Um, so the World Health Organization has a really crucial role here. Um, ideally, they would have the resources to actually provide supplies to people to, to countries that can't don't have access to them, but that's not really um, how it works. <laughs> 
WHO has quite limited funding. However, uh, WHO has become a very important sort of source of information. And that's crucial because there are many countries that, um, frankly, they, again, they don't have trust of their government. They don't know what's really going on in their, in their country. Uh, and uh, it will be, it's very important for them to be able to identify a source that's, um, that they trust. And WHO has that, has that role. Um, the other thing WHO does is sort of bring expertise from around the world together um, just to come up with a more science-based approach. So, so WHO's role is pretty important. Uh, I feel like in, for this particular pandemic, WHO has had a better response than some of the previous ones, uh, both in terms of um, not delaying uh, the response, but also um, being far more engaged uh, having said that, their resources are very limited. Uh, I was just reading about, for example, they have something like four or five staff members who are their communication people, and that's just uh, very, very inadequate in order for them to truly communicate uh, all the information uh, to the world at large, to have only a short staff, that's, that's really not uh, adequate. But this is a global pandemic. It absolutely, this is a time for countries to not just take, to worry about and care for the health of their own citizens, but to care for the health of everyone. Uh, and that is a message which I feel international organizations like WHO can communicate uh, to other countries. Let me add something on the economic side. This is Gary Hofbauer. Sure, uh, of course. G the G20 which is the 20 uh, largest countries, are going to hold a virtual conference soon uh, amongst the leaders. And uh, uh, there are important policy issues that they might make progress on. Unfortunately, as a result of the weakening of the global economy, uh, trade will decline very sharply. We know that from the 2008-2009 financial crisis, as was mentioned by our colleague from uh, from China, uh, trade will drop many more percentage points than, than gross domestic product. It could drop as much as 10%. But unfortunately, as well as the natural drop, because the economies are weak and there are supply chain problems, uh, there are policies being put in place by many countries to prevent exports of medical supplies, and also to limit imports. In other words, protection on both the import and export side is ramping up uh, in a major way. And that is something that the G20 economy leaders, if they agree amongst themselves, may restrain their domestic uh, inclinations uh, to protect. Uh, both vital exports, but also on the import side, and that would be a that would be a constructive measure. But we have to wait and see. Thank you, Mr. Havar. Would anyone else like to comment on that question? Okay, then in the interest of time, I am going to ask uh, one more question to the speakers, and this is for. 
all the speakers. Um, so we can go ahead and start with uh, Mr. Daria Unutmaz. Uh, and the the question is, there's a lot of uncertainty. People are afraid all over the world. They're afraid uh, for they're going to lose their jobs. What will happen after we sort of end the social distancing? The president has said that it may be as far as, you know, as soon as Easter that he would like the country to get back to work or reopen up uh, the, the economy. Others have said that that might not be the best idea. Uh, what is the message you would send to people around the world in these uncertain times? I mean, I think the the message is that yes, this is really a, 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 a really a human tragedy. I mean, this is a war of all humanity uh, against one virus, and we we all have to be united. There is no such thing as China, U.S., or or, or where else. Uh, and and there's there's absolutely no question we're going to beat this. I mean, this is this is very clear. Uh, but the, the the problem is that we need time, so we have to gain that time, and we have to minimize uh, the the collapse of economies, the collapse of healthcare systems, and obviously, the most importantly, minimize the number of lives that we're going to lose. Uh, you know, the the number of people who are acquiring immunity, um, what we call sort of the herd immunity, is going to start to develop uh, in some countries. Uh, and, you know, if you can sort of flatten the curve, so-called, and really kind of uh, slow down uh, the, the infections, and, and we saw this is, this is possible. Uh, you know, about uh, 1.5 billion people in the world are now in a sort of a virus, relatively virus-free zone in China and South, uh, Southeast Asia. Um, uh, you know, it might appear again. There's no guarantee, but at least people are not getting infected right and left. So if you can achieve that and we just gain some time, uh, science will beat this. There's, there's absolutely no question. So people should not lose hope uh, in that regard. But it is going to be a very, very difficult time. Thank you. Mr. Zard? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And, of course, uh, a question that among friends and among colleagues we've been talking about. The fact of the matter is, I agree with the former speaker, this too shall pass. And during the time that we're either locked down or um, being forced to work, as in medical uh, uh, folks in the medical field, but mostly the folks that are locked down, which is the majority of people, um, it's really... A, a time for businesses to be able to plan and to start if they haven't done their emergency planning to do that. I think on an individual level, and I know that, that um, uh, this is getting a bit personal, but on an individual level, this is really a time for reassessment of, um, of one's life. So uh, although it seems like such a, a terrible time, and it is a terrible time in many aspects, on the other hand, this can also be used uh, by people to reassess and to perhaps um, uh, take a different direction in the future. Thank you. Dr. Krishnan? Um, you know, I, I fully understand that there are public health kind of outcomes, and then there are also livelihood and economic outcomes. And the truth is um, there is some... Uh, conflict between the two. Um, ideally, we want a balance. We want to be saving lives, but we don't want to destroy people's livelihood. And that's sort of the tricky uh, part that the governments are struggling with, how to accomplish that 
But I do think and this is at this moment, at this phase of the epidemic, we we do need to um, prioritize the public health measures and trying to control this outbreak and, and bring the numbers down uh, and uh, the economy will come back up. Thank you. And Mr. Hotwater, I'm going to give you the last word. Thank you. It's been a very interesting conversation and I've learned a lot. Uh, your medical experts on the call have uh, emphasized testing and I couldn't agree more with that and I think the rate of of progress on testing uh, is is obviously much faster than for vaccines and faster than for treatment. I am hopeful that uh, millions and millions and millions of test kits will be manufactured and distributed at least in the advanced countries. And this will enable employers to uh, uh, give their employees test-at-home kits or test them, uh, test them on a drive-in basis very quickly so that many, many people can go back to work uh, because the, you know, the numbers infected, although it's rapidly growing, are much less than the, than the population so that there will be an ability for many people to get back to work fairly quickly and probably be tested quite frequently uh, to ensure that they're uh, free of the uh, free of the virus and i think that's a, that's a very hopeful sign for the advanced countries i'm 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 not at this point so hopeful for the emerging countries that i spoke of earlier in south america and africa and, and uh, uh, parts of asia india pakistan bangladesh uh, because their, uh, you know, the ability to test is, is sorely limited. So um, some hope, uh, but also many, many problems ahead. Thank you very much. And with that, we're going to conclude our teleconference this morning. I want to thank our speakers for taking the time to join us today and share their thoughts and how they see the situation playing out. In the future, uh, we've had over 100 people on this call this morning, uh, folks from the U.S. government, foreign embassies, universities, various think tanks, and folks calling in from around the world as well, outside of the country. Um, so thank you all so much for joining us. I also want to let you know that THO will be hosting a series of teleconferences and virtual events uh, coming up in the near future, about one a week. So please stay tuned for that. Thank you again to our speakers for joining us, and thank you to all of you. Thank you so much, and have a great day. Bye-bye.